Before we get to the show, did you know you can get more insights just like the ones you're listening to right here on Seeking Wisdom delivered right to your inbox? Sign up to get my weekly newsletter. It's called The One Thing at drift.com slash DC. All right, we're back with another episode of Seeking Wisdom. This is going to be an uncomfortable episode because I am a fanboy of the two people that we have as guests here. They're going to feel like uh, they're rock stars, and I'm a young teenage fanboy right here. And so I want to welcome Colin and Bill, authors of Working Backwards. And if you listen to this podcast, you know I've been singing the praises of this book. I've been waiting for this book for a very long time, and so welcome to the show, guys. Well, thank you for inviting us. Thanks for having us. We're excited. So before I introduce you formally, Bo, to the show with your backgrounds, is there any coincidence with the timing of this book and Bezos' retirement? Oh, absolutely. We, we um, were uh, discussing with him about when he should change his role for the last couple of years. And he was a little reluctant on the date, but eventually he agreed that it needed to correspond with our book release. Yeah. <laughs> to celebrate your book. I just thought it was funny because uh, for so many years, I have been trying to scour and piece together different legends of how Amazon worked internally and nothing had come out. And it was very hard to find information. And then all of a sudden, Bezos announced his movement to executive chair. Your book comes out. Uh, Wilkie's on lots of podcasts. I'm like, what, what's going Like everything's coming out all of a sudden. Obviously coincidence, but I thought it was it was funny. So I'm just going to formally introduce both of you so the audience knows. First, there's Colin Breyer. And so Colin joined Amazon, and I'm reading this, which I usually don't, but Amazon in 1998, and uh, four years after its founding, spent 12 years as part of Amazon's senior leadership team, and uh, was famously known as Bezos's shadow, aka Jeff's shadow, which we'll get into, and ran many different things, including IMDb, which I uh, was a huge fan of IMDb for many, many years, still am, and, uh, and currently co-wrote Working Backwards with Bill, and they run a coaching firm, coaching and advice firm, which I'll, they'll talk more about, called Working Backwards LLC. And thank you, Colin, for joining us. And Bill joined just a year after Colin, 1999, five years after founding of Amazon, spent 15 years there on the senior leadership team, and spent a lot of time really focused on all things non-physical. So digital stuff, everything from Kindle to movies to, to more. And so I'm excited to talk to you both. And I've worked front and backwards on this book. I've given it to most team members at Drift, and I've been a big recommender of this book. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you, and thanks for recommending the book. Oh, I love it. So what, how long ago did you two start working on this, on this idea for a book? And why did you think you needed to write a book? Well, the origin story goes back to, believe it or not, more than three years ago, February of 2017. And um, at that time, I was spending time as an exec in residence with a venture capital firm called Mavron. And I was attending their annual offsite meeting with their portfolio CEOs, as well as some public CEOs who were in attendance. And there was a roundtable discussion about a variety of topics, but all of a sudden the topic of Amazon came up in this discussion. And one of the most prominent CEOs in this group, who's well-known figure. I will not out him for the sake of this discussion because he said, Amazon, I don't understand how Amazon does it. How have they been able to be so successful in everything from cloud computing, e-commerce to digital media and devices to third-party logistics? We're still trying to get our core business right. I don't understand how they do it. And I was uh, you know, incredibly struck by that 
a well-known, prominent, uh, very successful CEO would say such a thing. And it's also struck by the fact, of course, that I knew the answer to this question. And I relayed this conversation to Colin, you know, shortly thereafter, we were actually on a vacation together where our families are friends, our kids are the same age. And apparently I w- we were in the kitchen, I was cleaning up the kitchen and I, st- I mentioned this. And I said, you know, you know, we know the answer to this question. It can be distilled to a bunch of repeatable processes. And no one knows this. this there's no information out there in the wild. You can't find this on a website. And I said, you know, we should write a book to answer this question. Uh, I think I said, I should write a book. And then Colin said, yeah, I agree. We should write a book. And he totally horned in on my project from that moment on. I like the way you roll, Colin. The part I could never understand about Amazon, because for so long I've been trying to figure out how it actually worked internally because everything seems so logical from what I heard from the outside, from two pizza teams to all, all the legend, was just like, why none of this information ever made it out? So many people worked at Amazon, but I never could find anything written down in the wild. I think putting it together comprehensively is something that hadn't been done. You know, Bill and I, we had seen blog posts or, you know, people talk about one or more processes, and it was really just their view of how they used it at Amazon. And that's why we realized there was something there. If you put everything together, it really describes some advances in management science that Amazon has created. And you looked at holistically, it is something that uh, small organizations and large organizations can do. Then the other thing is that uh, both Bill and I were lucky enough to have been in the room and participating and making actually a ton of mistakes with these processes as they were being developed. You know, we described them as fully formed in the book, but none of them started out that way. There was a journey to get there. And when I was working with Jeff Bezos as his technical advisor, we were creating these processes to solve very specific problems that we were experiencing at that time. And, you know, often uh, for the Kindle example, for example, Bill is on one side of the room trying to figure out how to write a PR FAQ document. And I was on the other side with Jeff, with his TA coming in and reviewing that and then moving over to AWS. So we just had a unique insight. And uh, you know that was another reason we felt excited to get the story out holistically. We wanted to really get the story right because there is something special that Amazon has created. And we just had a unique bird's eye view, but also we were some of the early adopters on the bleeding edge uh, who were involved in creating these processes. I love that you brought up the PR FAQ because I cannot tell you how much of my life energy I have spent trying to reverse engineer, understand how that worked within Amazon. And maybe you can talk more about what the PR FAQ is for people, but I could never find a real example of how it worked. Obviously, I understand it in concept, but like, how did it actually work? How did it evolve? How did you stay true to it and not give in, right? Uh, Which is the easiest human tendency to like go backwards to a presentation format or something else. How did you not compromise? Like, how did it actually work in practice? practice? Well, I guess to answer the last part of your question first is one of the hallmarks of Amazon is discipline. And that really starts with Jeff, which is there There are many times I remembered he would say when we were discussing a, a specific business problem or operational issue, and people would try to maybe take a, a route to say, well, about you know, why it may not be possible to achieve it. And he would remind them, well, you know, what you're describing really just requires the discipline for us to focus on it and ensure that we do achieve it. So that word got used a lot and he employed it where, well, you see too often in companies, right? There's many companies that flit from, you know, management 
practices and processes du jour and flit from one to the other, right? They're kind of like just bouncing around, seeking new ones, and they're very much influenced by what may be the latest business book or business concept. And, you know, no doubt Jeff and Amazon were actually quite influenced by a number of outside business concepts. But the difference was that really beginning in sort of the 2003, 2004 timeframe, we became more disciplined and sort of then we, we were very focused on like, what is really the end goal that we're focused on here with this process? And we started to move away from or reject a lot of the processes that are commonly used or traditionally used and really had our own mind to say, well, what what is it we're trying to achieve? And in the case of the PRFAQ, what we're trying to achieve is like, how do we make sure that when we're developing a new product, we stay relentlessly focused on the customer? Because in fact, if you look at how we started out and how most companies did it at that time, those processes didn't involve much focus on the customer. It involved a lot of coming up with different, you know, if you if you were, as we were thinking about entering the digital media business, we would say, okay, so what's the size? What does Gartner say that digital music will be in five years? And what market share should we we have of that and what will a PL look like and how should we negotiate with the record companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or maybe we'd perform a SWOT analysis and look at our strengths and weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats. And in none of this would the customer actually come up. And so where we really became how these processes came about was Jeff being tenacious about a specific end goal. In this case, how do I stay focused on the customer when I'm thinking about developing a new product? And we iterated over time. The press release is, turns out to be the ultimate way to do that because you cannot help but focus exclusively on why this product would appeal to a customer or not when you're writing a press release because that's the audience. And it also proved to be an incredibly simple tool. It's not heavyweight. Anyone can write a one-page press release. Anyone um, writing a really good one that actually really captures a true customer problem and a great um, feature that solves that problem is hard, but anyone can, can do it. Whereas certain other methods of designing products like building a prototype, making a design require specialized skills and are time consuming. So long story short, it was really just about having that relentless focus on what's the goal. And then as Jeff would say, stubborn on the vision, flexible on the details, iterating, iterating until we get to the right long-term vision. And I just add that the long-term is really important there combined with the discipline and it then willing to try and do invent new things. Even if everyone else uses slides, we realized, well, narratives are actually a better decision-making tool, writing memos, because you know, for a number of reasons, it's a harder path. It's it's harder to write a six-page memo than it is to throw some slides together. That's one example of choosing the harder path. It may take you a while to get started, but you'll eventually be able to make better decisions across a wider variety of businesses. Another quick example is with metrics, You know, we've come across companies who say, well, our executives want high-level summaries of how the business is running. At Amazon, we inverted that and we said for the same investment in you know, the executive team's time, how can we put as much information in in a digestible format by looking at controllable inputs for that one hour of weekly business review or executive time? And it's harder to figure that out and it's harder to have the discipline to look at that every week. But those are just the PRFAQ narratives and metrics are three examples where Amazon chose the harder path in the short term, but it unlocked a ton of value and it actually speeds you up once you start operating in that manner. You, you said an interesting word to me that I'd love to double click on, which is controllable input. So controllable. What do you mean by that? 
So once you have your company goals, you know, be they free cash flow or share price, you don't have control over in any short term time horizon. So what you need to do is you need to back up from that and say, what are the set of activities that we have control over that if we do those things right, will generate the desired you know, direction in the output metrics that I that I named before. You can think of a company as like a process. You want, you know what the output of the process has to be, but the way you get there is you focus on the other side of the inputs and the knobs and dials that you have control to finely tune this machine. And so for Amazon, the, you know, the, the big categories, it's the Amazon flywheel. And we're talking about the, the retail business. It's really price, which is all about how can you lower your cost structure to afford, be able to afford lower prices. Uh, selection, how can you on a metronome add more and more categories and products to your catalog that are available for sale. And then convenience, which is, you know, a lot of it is easy to find products, but then also really click to deliver when a customer decides to buy something. How long does it take to show up on their door? And so Amazon realized that if you focus and get those things right, you your customers will reward you with their trust and their hard-earned dollars, and your business will grow, and 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 you know the share price will will appreciate. But you can't focus on the the share price. You need to have a detailed set of metrics. I outlined three broad categories, but if you were to look at all of the individual metrics that you have to get right in order to do that, that's a long list. And and you look at those every day and every week, and you, you have to have faith that once you do those controllable inputs. In, in the right way that it will yield the, the right outcome in your business. You both mentioned, you know, the word discipline. And I love to like talk more about that because that's the part I could never figure out from the, for, as an outsider. And, you know, like the idea of building around the customer is something I've been fascinated with ever since the early 2000s when I read Made in America by Sam Walton and I became obsessed with it, which I bought on Amazon, by the way, very, very early 2000s. Became obsessed with that or some of the, the PRFAQ or some of the controllable inputs that you're talking about. Like they're all things that are simple to understand. They're logical, they're rational, but they're not easy to actually implement. The discipline part is almost the impossible part. It's almost like, you know, how do you lose weight? stop eating and move more like that's that's yeah i understand that but no one can do it what made it possible within within amazon to have that long-term vision have that discipline especially in the early years when i mean you guys were there in 1998 99 and then you saw the run-up and then the world fell apart including amazon stock in the early 2000s like how did you maintain discipline during those times well First of all, I would say I don't, I wouldn't submit, and, and Colin may disagree with me, but I would say in many ways, Amazon was not a terribly disciplined company in those early years. Uh, it was like most startups where we were growing in a million different directions and we really didn't have a lot of great processes and controls. And, you know, for example, the year I showed up in 1999, we exited the year with, you know, excessive amounts of inventory relative to the sales turns that we, uh, the sales that we had. We had, I, I, I can't remember what it was, but there was, um, some of the sort of the cardboard corrugate or one of the elements we needed to ship products, we had so like a mountain of it in one fulfillment center, like way more than we needed because people didn't know how much to order. You know, we were just trying to hold on to for our dear lives, the runaway train of demand. So it really wasn't that. So to be clear, this is an important point because it's not as if Amazon was like Athena that was born out of Zeus's head, fully formed. It, we went through all of the, you know, awkward growth stages that any growth company goes through where we were successful is that I'd say, you know, we transitioned in the 2000s, the early 2000s, and probably most notably starting around 2003 to start to 
build out and establish some of our own processes. And in some cases, early on, we'd actually, you know, started to implement processes from other companies. Um, Colin will remind me of the exact date, but it was around like 2001 when we started what's called the NPI process at the company to try to plan out how now we have so many different divisions and groups. We have international. How are we going to plan out the work across this now complex company? And we adopted a process from GE or a simple simplified version of it. And, you know, we ended up rejecting that process and rejecting that method of doing really deep communication and collaboration and went in a different direction with initially two pizza teams, then later single threaded separable teams. So it's it's really we we started to go down this path and we're actively seeking and we, you know, we we had we had a problem. The problem was the company was big; it was growing fast. We were in many countries, many businesses. So, how are we going to effectively manage this? But how do we maintain our customer focus? And how do we maintain our agility and ability to continue to innovate? And so that those are really the parts where, because we wanted to maintain those things, some of the off-the-shelf management practices that were out there did not actually enable companies to maintain those two things. And so we sought to make changes. And part of it is fostering a culture that allows that to happen. Yeah, at Amazon, we say often, said often a lot, you don't let defects travel downstream. So if you notice something that goes wrong, you need to make sure it gets fixed. Because if an error happened, it's usually a process error and it will happen again. And it probably will happen again. You double in size, it's going to, you know, the magnitude only increases over time. So actually today is the, the cheapest time in the history of the company to fix that defect. And so you have to, and it's it's hard when you want to do all these great things, but you realize, well, here's something that's not Im- impacting a ton of customers, but I need to go fix it. And we found usually when you go back and fix those, you find a lot of other causes or, you know, landmines that just hadn't happened yet. And you, you end up fixing more than you think. And uh, Jeff has talked about having pride in operational excellence because a lot of the work that you do as an individual or as a team, no one else is going to see. The discipline has to come from within. And so when we interview people at Amazon, we find out, do, you know, is that does that person have the, you know, they, they want to get those little details right. It doesn't matter if someone's standing over your shoulder or if you're going to get a bonus at the end of the quarter. It's just, I need to get the details right because that matters. And you tra- you all trace it back to the customer experience. You know, if you ship something and it's late for the customer, you don't know what the impact is. It could be it could not make a difference for some people, but it you know it could be something very important that really has a, a material impact on the the customer's day, week, or month, or life in them. And so you know, we just it, it you have to put yourself in the customer's mind. You have to want to get the the details right from within. And then you have to have specific processes at the company to enforce and be able to measure and enforce that discipline. I was just going to ask you about that, the enforcement part, because something like that you mentioned, which I've been fascinated with and implemented many times, this idea of the single-threaded team. And every time that I have, I've experienced and I've seen the success of it. But the minute that it's almost like a garden, like the minute that you turn away from it, like weeds start growing and, and they want to, especially on the technical side and engineering side, they tend to want to come back together into a single unit uh, no matter how much you fight. And so like you have to constantly be pruning and making sure that you keep this discipline. How did you enforce something like single threaded teams? 
So this is a good example of where a lot of people over time have looked at these concepts as a trade-off. Either you can have autonomy or you can have control. And Jeff was frequently, uh, frequently I heard him say, you know, we should not have the tyranny of the or. It is possible to have, it is possible to have low cost and quality. It is possible to have autonomy and control. And so there were a couple of mechanisms that were designed to do this. And so the first one in the early days for two pizza teams, it was this idea of a fitness function where we would create this set of metrics and create that, this hash of those metrics and be able to track what they were doing that way. But that didn't work, but it was an attempt at how do I maintain control of an autonomous body as a, a CEO and a senior leader. But what it evolved to was instead, you know, this is why the whole, why we keep saying it's not one thing, it's this whole machine. So one part of the machine was the writing, the written document process. So then later, what happens is that autonomous teams would write their plan, their business plan. What's their operating plan? What am I going to do for the next 12 months? Here are the key initiatives that I'm going to work on. Here are the specific metrics and goals that I'm going to chase after. And then Jeff and the executive team would harvest from each one of those plans a subset of those goals and make that something that they would personally track. And the second part is then there's check-ins, there's accountability, and this layers up and down. So not every team, of course, you know, Jeff checks in with, but, you know, for my team in, in digital video, I could have a monthly business review with different subsets of my team. They would be autonomous and separate, but it didn't mean that I couldn't check in with them and they couldn't write up a review of what progress did they make and how are they doing, and I can't give guidance and feedback. So... And then another one of the mechanisms really was the PRFAQ process. So if you want to set a team off to go build something completely new, if you give them sort of just high level guidance and set them off and then check in with them in six months, the odds that they're really doing an exact, you know, what you think that they should be doing are probably pretty low. So instead, you know, the mechanism was to spend a lot of time up front defining what's the new product you're going to go build using this PR FAQ process and getting that right. And once you get it right, then you can say, great, now the team can go off and run hard to go build this. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great answer. The only thing I, I would add is that there's no perfect org chart and org structure. So, if you know, whatever your org structure is, it, you want to optimize for the strengths of that. But then if you want to share what people learn across orgs, you have to just have some processes. If you want data scientists who are spread out through the company to be able to share, uh, you know, advances in machine learning or data science, you have to put that in place. But it can be independent of the org chart. So sometimes people focus a little too much on the org chart. It's really the... Uh, autonomy and, and and control and capabilities of those single threaded leaders that 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 matter the most. And how you mentioned a couple of times, Bill, you mentioned the word mechanisms. Can we double click on the uh, mechanisms? Another area that I became obsessed with mechanisms or at uh, Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio call it machines. Like what is this idea of mechanisms at Amazon? Well, so yeah, there's a saying at Amazon, you know, good intentions don't work, mechanisms do. So when something goes wrong, one of the things that we asked at Amazon is, well, what, you know, what caused that? And you can go through the, you know, the five why process that we get from, from Toyota, but it's not the answer. Well, we'll try harder or we're going to just make sure it doesn't happen again. That, that's an example of good intentions. And those don't work uh, mainly because people are already trying pretty darn hard and they had good intentions going into it. So you're not actually asking for any change in behavior. And usually what happens is you, 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 well, first of all, you need to ask, well, 
why why did this error or defect happen and what do we need to change what process or do we need to change in the company in order to prevent that from from happening again and so a, a good example is we have uh, we had you know voice of the customer voice of the seller voice of the developer um, a group would bring problems that are you know one or more of our subsets of customers had and you it, they were very very painful to, to read about how you let down those customers lives that day and you know they're not afraid to tell you listen this is what happened I couldn't get you know uh, my credit card was locked and I couldn't go buy uh, you know medicine for my kids and you listen to that and you think I, I can't believe this happened but but then the next step is you say okay well what specifically do we need to fix or change? It could be software, it could be a process, or it could be someone's not appropriately trained, uh, you know, to handle handle the job. And uh, and so that's where you, it's not solved until you've actually implemented a, a specific mechanism to do so. And what's what's the difference to you between a mechanism and a process in in the way that most companies think about a process? I don't think that there's any difference. I think mechanism is just a different word for a process. So the point is. Anytime as we work with companies in the early stage and, you know, they have less experience. And to me, anytime you, you hear a CEO or a leader complaining about, you know, XYZ problem keeps happening or there's this problem. And the root cause of that is not probably some person or the org structure. It's simply that they don't have a process. They haven't gone upstream to think about, well, why is that really happening in the first place? And what process or mechanism do I really need to put in place to prevent that from happening again? And so it can be as simple as there's there's a very simple mechanism that was put in place to prevent a very large AWS outage from occurring again. A software administrator added another zero yet to when they were taking some of the network routers offline into the percentage, and it, it you know it did some some damage. So they said, how can you prevent a, you know single human from making this mistake? So they fixed that process. You know there are two people that looks at look at it, and they had an automated check. Hey, are you sure you really want to take down forty percent of the capacity? Of of the in, in this d data center, and you know you need a, approval to do so. But all the way up to where you know a CEO, a lot of times we get frustrated. Why are people making these decisions? It's so clear to me that they should make a decision in a different way. And really, where the process broke down is that CEO did not accurately give a set of guidelines and principles to the rest of the people in the company to make tough decisions with not a whole lot of information when they have to move fast and the CEO is not in the room. So that mechanism is having a well-defined codified set of leadership principles and then stitching them into how you hire, how you um, you know, measure things. So it can be, you know, it can be as simple as before you hit the keystroke, get another person to look at it, or you, you know, you you the CEO may know exactly what needs to happen, but you actually haven't told everyone how to think and how to act when you're not standing over their shoulder or in the room. And so you need to put in a mechanism to make sure that everyone in the company operates from that same set of first principles. Did you have to fight this tension between this single threadedness, you know, distributed model and ever having the feeling or hearing from people that we have too many processes, we have too many mechanisms, we have too many, like, you know, it's hard to, to maintain some agility in the in the company. All the time. And, you know, this is where, as Bill mentioned, being stubborn on the vision and flexible on the details. You know, sometimes you do have, you know, sometimes you do have too much process. So for, Bill mentioned the NPI new project initiative pro process we brought in from GE and and modified it. 
we tried that because we wanted to 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 prioritize you know a bunch of global and you know cross-functional projects but we realized it was too heavyweight you know and we, we were listening to people and there there was feedback and so we came up with with something simpler which evolved into two pizza teams and single threaded leaders so yeah you know no company is perfect and you always have to be curious and and also willing to admit that you're wrong uh that you made a mistake it it's actually quite liberating if if you th- can think about that because then you realize then you can fix something and actually get better if if you if you say no this is the process and you get too focused on the process versus what is the outcome we're trying to achieve that that's where you get to you know that your focus is the process itself which isn't the outcome yeah the way you can figure that out is if if you were to parachute in and talk to um, you know middle managers about a certain process and if they describe ways in which they basically are trying to game it to win it <laughs> that's exactly, right right that's if, exactly if they describe it. the oh well, here are my tricks to win this process <laughs> then you know the process is 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 too much or wrong it needs to be oh edited I'm sorry, Phil. I can't tell you how many times all of us have, have had that happen to come in. And there's just like this wild gamification that's happening. That's like, what is happening? This is craziness. So you have Amazon, you have what you learned there. I understand the leadership principles and I understand that ethos. How do you localize a lot of these mechanisms for like a new employee to come into a group? There's a whole set that has to cascade below the leadership principles. Where did those live? How did those get codified? So new people coming into Amazon, the more experienced they were, frankly, the more challenging it was for them to learn how to be successful and operate within Amazon because the way we operated was so different than most companies. Probably less so if you were a software development engineer, but if you were a traditional quote unquote business person, it felt very jarring and different. You know, when you start to have to write documents and you realize that a lot of decision-making in in business-oriented companies is actually about, you know, is about winning arguments and opinion. And at Amazon, it was much more about truth-seeking, sharing facts broadly, and through a process of writing and discovery, like arriving at truth. And that is very different than a lot of of companies and cultures. So uh, what I found is that the longer I was at Amazon, the longer I, I stayed at Amazon, and the more you know, senior people I brought into the org, the more time I was spending coaching, teaching about our principles, about our processes, and you know how to enable you know these people to become successful. Then that that and that's partly why this is what we do now because I realized that this is how I'm spending 80% of my time inside Amazon, and it wouldn't be cool if I could now help the next generation business leaders at a variety of companies outside of Amazon. Now that you've gone through this experience and you've started working backwards and now you're helping other companies, I would imagine by definition, all of those companies are smaller than Amazon. Uh, How do you, maybe maybe they're not, but like I would imagine they are. How do you translate some of the things that worked or the things that worked at Amazon that you think are core? How do you incorporate those into an existing company that may be smaller, maybe have a different set of constraints? How does that process work today for you? Some of it depends on where the stage the the company is is at. So we do work with some smaller companies, all, you know, all the way up through public companies too. Where, quite honestly, we're not that uh, we can't add that much as if you're still trying to chase market fit and and you're trying to. But you know, once you have something and you now want to add another zero to number of customers, uh, you know, employees, revenue, and you're in essentially the biggest job of your career at this point. And, you know, th- those are multi-dimensional problems that, that we get involved with. So first of all, for those earlier stage companies, you know, if you don't have leadership principles, if you haven't really codified who you are and how you make 
decisions. That is the first starting point. And then the second is as you hire people, you know, if you're going to go from 20 people to 100 or 100 to 500, if you don't have a deliberate process for vetting people to say, will this person reinforce what our culture is or will they detract from it? it they're probably going to detract from it. So when you go from 100 to 500, you'll look back a year later and you'll say, this company is just not what it, it used to be. It's not what we're about. And really the cause of that was that you didn't have that deliberate, you didn't have the very clear definition and then a deliberate process to go, you know, attract people who reinforce those, you know, who you want to be because each company is unique. And so that's the first part for smaller ones. But for, uh, you know, larger organizations, it's really, you know, where are their pain points? You know, these processes we described were very specific solutions to very specific problems that companies have. So, you know, we don't go in and try to make every company like Amazon. We try to understand what, you know, what's going well at the company so we don't mess with it and you don't tinker with it. If that's going well, don't break it and don't mess with it, but then figure out what are the key problems. And quite honestly, some of them are, they sound simple, but they're hard. You know, like as a new executive, how should I be spending my day as a CEO? You know, I just got a big series D funding and I am overwhelmed with meetings and I don't know where to focus my time. And, you know, that's probably one of the most important decisions a CEO can make is how they want to allocate their time. So anywhere from, you know, decisions like that to how can I get in a good operating cadence so I know what my customer's experience was last week and is, you know, was it better than the week before? And are we on path to improve the, the customer experience? And are, are we working on the right controllable input metrics to, to generate what we want to accomplish as a business? How much of the time that for you taking on a new client now working backwards is spent vetting the leader, the CEO, whoever it is that you're working with to make sure that they can maintain a long-term vision, that they can have this level of discipline, that they won't just revert back to whatever state or whatever practices or whatever things that weren't working in the past. To me, it seems like that would have to be a critical part for things to, for you to be able to have an effect or to implement change in an organization. Maybe, is that something you spend a lot of time thinking about? I think it's a great question. And one of the ways that we approach this is that we, in many cases, we start off with a company where we, we focus on working with them for say a window of three months to get started so that we both get to know each other. And, you know, that way we can figure out if it's a great, you know, long-term from their point of view, are we going to be helpful to them for the long-term and vice versa? Do we think that we can be helpful to them? Or is there a good, is there a good fit and good match? It seems like it would be a, a hard one. I think one of the things I always repeat is simple, not easy, like that most things are simple, but not easy. Like on the face of it, it seems simple to implement some of the things that we're talking about because they're logical, they're rational, you can understand them, but like it's human behavior to kind of revert or to, to go back to consensus thinking or go back to whatever practice that you have. Yeah, it's no different than it's like a marathon. Like it's, it's pretty straightforward. Like I can give anyone a training plan for how to do it. And the first week is probably pretty easy for everyone. The hard part is like, week six or five when it hurts and there's like you're tired and you have to you have to go do that run today and can you make yourself do it and that's to me is the definition of discipline is that you can find that mental discipline to do it yeah, and it appears in all the processes. You know, I just interviewed someone. I need to write a very thorough set of feedback to my peers so we can evaluate whether this person is a great candidate for the company. But I've got another three meetings coming up. Like, how do I find the time to really make the, you know, to, to write this feedback? It's conceptually easy, but you just have to, you have to devote the time and the focus on that because, you know, it's important. And you, I just picked that as a, in one random area, but that's an example of just the discipline and your, the 
the pride in your operational excellence, you know, to get the details right. It, you, if you have to keep hounding people with that, then that's probably not the process for, for your company. You know, there, there are different ways to build great companies. And, you know, we think this is worthy of study. And for the uh, companies that do want to adopt this, you know, we're, we're happy to work with them. But if, if they don't, you know, that, that's fine too. If they want to go another route, the only thing I would encourage is pick a method. Um, you know, that, that's probably the, the, the most important, uh, thing. And, you know, and, and so even if we don't work, end up working with them long term, we encourage them to, well, here's something that you can prevent, pick on how you want to do this and focus on what that solution is. With the companies you work with now and given your experience, how do you think about hiring now? Like it, it seems like so much of it had to be baked into for it to scale to into the hiring process. I don't know exactly what techniques you use or how you kept that. I mean, I know of the concepts of, and I've read a million things about bar raisers and things like that, but how, how do you think about advising companies now around their hiring practice? You know, one thing is obviously forcing detailed reviews, like you mentioned, Colin, but how else do you think about it when you advise them? Well, this is actually one of the parts that I think is, in fact, one of the most straightforward and easy ones to apply. And there's really two parts to it. Part one is actually establishing real leadership principles for your company that are, you know, well-crafted, valid, that really reflect where you are as a company, in addition to a bit of where you want to go, and that they really reflect and define what does role model leadership look like inside your company, and what are the lenses through which you should make decisions in your company. So one of the things that people probably early in their career really don't get is how different companies are, and that a single individual that can be wildly successful at a company like Google could be spectacularly unsuccessful at a company like Starbucks, or maybe even Amazon. Like It depends so much on, and that finding uh, the, the job search process is an important two-way two-way thing. It's just as important for the candidate to find the company where they will be successful as it is for the employer. And too many people focus on just functional skills. And that is, so that's that's sort of the minimum, which, and those are actually not that difficult to ascertain for the most part. The more challenging part to ascertain is the way someone will do work and how they operate and how they lead, does that fit with the principles and structure of our company versus this other company? Because each one is so different. So that's one where we spend time with companies first seeking to define and articulate their leadership principles. And then step two is to change the hiring process that at the very least, the one change you can make to your hiring process is to start to conduct interviews where the criteria are objective and that everyone is studying the same criteria, which are how does this candidate meet our bar for our leadership principles? Would they be a role model leader here based on the way they've led and acted in the past? And when I use the word leader, by the way, everyone is a leader. An individual contributor coming out of college, their first job is a leader, as is the CEO and everyone in between. And so the trick in an interview is to find not just a functional match, but a, for lack of a better term, a personality match in terms of the personality of that leader in terms of how they work. This is an area I'm so fascinated on. I, I felt like for all my hiring in the past that really there were only two dimensions that I would evaluate on and that most people would. There's the one that you mentioned, which is the quantitative stuff, then that's easy. The hard skills, and it's very easy to test for hard skills, especially the closer you get to, to engineering or, or those kind of disciplines. And then there's the other one, the kind of qualitative of like, you know, the qualitative kind of stuff. But then there was this like hidden third dimension and, we, you know, in the way that you described, like how close are they and how do they make decisions? How close are they to the leadership 
principles of this company versus the context that they may have operated in and been successful in other companies. And I thought this third part was like actually the most critical part, that it's very easy to look at quantitative stuff. It's very easy to get romanticized on the qualitative stuff uh, about a person and how they fit within a team and are they, you know, quote unquote, a cultural fit and all those kind of things. But there was this context part that was actually the most important part. And so it sounds like for you, it first starts with the leadership principles, defining those, making sure, and you, you use the word, you emphasize the word real, which is an important thing in leadership principles. Are they real? And then that's how you're kind of backfitting. That's how you're testing whether someone would be a great leader within this specific context versus the others they operated in. Is that correct? Yeah. And you have to know how to test, you know, going into the interview, you know, here are the two leadership principles. I am responsible for vetting the, the candidate. And I know going into the interview, what are the sets of questions I'm going to ask? And I have the experience to know when to probe deeper if I didn't get an answer that didn't yield the right information that, that I need. So yeah, when people say a good culture fit, I usually ask, what do you mean? Because that is such, it, it could be a vacuous statement, or there could be a lot of information you can unpack behind that. But you know, a, a culture fit in and of itself doesn't give any information to the, the rest of the interviewing panel. You could say this person is customer f- obsessed in this way or long-term focus or the inventive because they created these three things outside of their day job. And, 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 you know, so I know that they have an inventive, curious spirit and that rolls up into, are they a good culture fit? But you have to go down to that next level of detail and make a deliberate assessment uh, in order to, to come up with that conclusion. Yeah, like a common mistake I've encountered when people are trying to test for cultural fit is they'll ask a question about like, why do you want to work at this company? Which is not the worst question in the world to ask. By the way, it should only be asked once by the recruiter or the hiring manager well in advance of actually bringing them in in-house. And it should never be asked by every single person on the loop in-house. It's, it's a dumb waste of time. Why would you have six people all ask the same question? And number two, they'll have one canned answer, which can be based off of their clever study of the website or talking to a few people that that, that then will sound, oh, they really understand our company and our culture. Because, you know, But the fact that they've been able to rehearse it doesn't tell you whether they're actually a good culture fit. The only way you can figure out if they're a good culture fit is to then use behavioral interviewing techniques to get examples from their past work to find out, well, how have they worked in the past and how does that relate to our leadership principles? The other area where companies make mistakes are is that I see they haven't really actually codified or agreed on what their culture is. So if you have six different people interview the candidate, they'll have six different ideas of what their company's culture is in the first place. So not only do they not have agreement on what the culture is, but then they don't actually have the right um, tools to figure out whether the person is a a match for their culture. And that started by auditing and just being maniacal on the interview process itself and making sure that you had a system to ensure that or a mechanism, to use your terms, that you couldn't repeat questions. To be completely literal, the interview process at Amazon, if you come in and you have six interviewers, there are 14 leadership principles. Each interviewer will be assigned two or three of the leadership principles and they will interview the candidate about those principles and virtually nothing else because that's their only job is to determine, does this candidate meet our bar for those principles? And they'll, by the way, they've gone through specific training that helps them A, understand, well, there are many mechanisms to help people understand what the Amazon leadership principles in great detail a, so what do they mean? And and B, how do I actually interview someone to find out whether they are a fit for that or not? And then 
the debrief meeting that happens, which is uh, they have to take notes and document the interview, which is not typical in most companies. They have to attend a debrief meeting every time, which is also not typical. And in the debrief meeting, the objective criteria that are discussed are, okay, we're going to decide about this candidate based on how they stack up on all 14 of the leadership principles. And now we have objective data because each one of you had specific data to go collect. We're going to put it all together, look at it and make a decision based on those data. And is there a mechanism in that meeting to prevent consensus thinking? Of course, you have the objective data, people to talk themselves into wanting to hire this because they heard Colin's great, you know, uh, example of how they embodied, you know, principle seven. You know, how do you prevent that from happening? Is that where the concept of the bar raisers came? That is the bar raisers job is to run the debrief meeting and to help the hiring manager make the right decision. And if you abstract this process, what we tried to do with bar raisers was take that person, the individual person out of the process and make sure that if you put trained people in, it still is going to work and it's going to get better the more you do that. Because there are some people, quite honestly, who are just inherently great interviewers. And with a small company, it's easy to say, okay, you know, these three people are going to interview the candidates coming in because they're great at assessing talent. Well, they're 168 hours in the week. And if you want to hire 100 people, there you know you can't rely on those three people. So you have to take the person out of your that that process and make sure that you have the appropriate training checks and balances, and then feedback loops that go in there. And a great feedback loop in the bar raiser process is that debrief meeting uh, because you get to not only assess the candidate, but you figure out how did you get this information out of the candidate? I was trying and I couldn't find that. What questions did you ask? A lot of that happens at the debrief meeting. Some companies when they make the hiring decision, they'll just read. It'll be the hiring manager and someone from HR, the recruiter, just reading the feedback. If there is written feedback or looking at the votes and then the hiring manager decides, do I want to hire this person? This debrief meeting is an important feedback loop. Everyone's a better interviewer coming out of each and, and every debrief because, uh, you know, I learn something or I teach something in pretty much every debrief. So the more that you go through this process, the better it gets. It's scalable because you just, you know, keep the ratio of bar raisers to the number of interviews and candidates in, in, in lockstep so you can add more bar raisers. And the other thing is we tried this in one department at Amazon. It was the product development development group. This is in 1999. There were 20 initial bar raisers and it worked so well that other groups just started to adopt it. And that's a sign of another good process is it's not a, a stick approach. It's a carrot approach because quite honestly, the hiring managers realize this is going to help me build my team faster and attract higher quality people. And, and so it just started to spread through the company. And then we eventually mandated for all the salaried positions. It is, it is required, but it wasn't that was a non-controversial decision at that point because you said, yeah, it's great. So we should just instrument our uh, recruiting pipeline and hiring process to just implement bar raisers. So, you know, there are a couple of things, I think, notable lessons above and beyond recruiting about the bar raiser process itself and how and why Amazon adopts some of these scalable, repeatable processes that have this nice fractal quality. The bar raisers works for a 15-person company and it, it works, Amazon has 1.3 million employees uh, as of last week's it's probably a lot higher, you know, so it, it, it works for, for that company size too. And it's the same process. So is that an important tool that you bring to companies that you work with, this idea of the bar raiser or something equivalent? It is if they want it. Uh, we are not salespeople. You're, you're not spreading gospel. You're... We are, if they have read our gospel and they say, I, I want have, that. I have, and I want to adopt and your gospel. And if you say, great, I want to adopt your gospel. <laughs> 
then great. This is but, getting too weird for me. <laughs> but we're never, I have a jar of Kool Aid here. But we do not. Um, we do not have. We are not missionaries. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's been fascinating talking to both of you. I could talk to you forever, but you two would be bored talking to me all day. Where can people follow you online? I'm fascinated by your work. Fascinated by your book. I will gift this book to many, many people this year and uh, in subsequent years. Thank you for for this great book. Well, and, and thank you for having us on the podcast. People can find more out about what we do at it's just workingbackwards.com, all one word. And so that's our website where we talk a little bit more about uh, the, the concepts in the book, what we do, and we're putting more and more content out, uh, up you know, to supplement what's in the book that's uh, coming up, but we're still working on that too. Yep. Great. And I'm going to go fill out that form. I'm going to be the first one there before anyone listens to this podcast. Make sure you work with Drift before anybody else. Awesome. Thank you both. And if you like this, this episode was groundbreaking. We are the universe's only six-star podcast, but this was an eight-star worthy episode. Thank you, uh, Bill. And thank you, Colin, for joining us today. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Let me know what you thought of this episode by texting me at one. 212-380-1036. Again, 1212-380-1036. Now, if you're looking for more leadership insights, sign up for my weekly newsletter, The One Thing, at drift.com slash DC. Every week, I'll share a habit, tool, or mental model that's helping me reach my goals. Hope to see you there. Text me. Hit me up. 